Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, the podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Eric C. Chafee, Professor of Law at the University of Toledo College of Law. And he's going to be discussing his scholarship on the collaborative theory of corporations in relation to both corporate social responsibility and charitable organizations. So welcome, Eric. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. Yeah. So I, as you know, I'm a big fan of these papers, which uh, I read in the past and just had an opportunity to, to reread this morning. And um, I'm really looking forward to talking to you about them. But before we launch into kind of the difficult questions about collaborative theory and corporate responsibility and charity law, I was hoping maybe you could give the listeners a little bit of a background in the history and different theories of of the corporation, because I think that'll be really helpful for them in, in understanding your argument and why, why it's so interesting. Great. Uh, happy to do it. Um, so this piece, you know, the further you get along as a scholar, I think the more you question the foundations of what you're doing. Uh, meaning that, you know, as a young scholar, often what you're trying to produce is, um, a very nuanced piece about something that's hot and cutting edge. And sometimes you don't really get into the basic questions that you really need to explore uh, to be a very good scholar in a particular field. So this particular field or this particular project, what I'm trying to do is to explore the question of what is a corporation? And that sounds like a really basic, easy question. I mean, you know, corporations have been around for centuries. There are lots out there. They're incredibly important in our lives. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of debate over what they happen to be. You know, we know that corporations have deep roots, uh, which I trace back uh, to ancient Rome, because uh, the word corporation comes from the word corpus, and there were various uh, entities that looked like corporations uh, during that time period. And, you know, largely what they uh, served was social purposes, you know, burial societies, um, social clubs, uh, homes for the poor, the aged, that sort of thing, and even the Roman state. And throughout time, you know, that notion of the corporation was um, developed. You know, the uh, Roman Catholic Church, for example, during the Middle Ages, uh, they developed the notion of uh, the corporate personhood, this notion that the corporation is a fictitious person, uh, from there, we see those types of ideas uh, imported to England, um, and at that point, uh, there was this idea that corporations could be used for societal development, um, and at the ta- at the same time that they might have a business tension. So we see things like uh, companies being chartered for the exploration of land. Mm-hmm. Um, Ultimately, uh, notions of the corporate form end up being imported to the uh, colonies. Um, and during that time period, to have a corporation, uh, basically what you had to do um, was to petition the colonial legislature, uh, which is sort of surprising because we think of corporations as being relatively easy to form today. Uh, but at the same time, um, what they were during that period, uh, or during that time period, better put, uh, was basically these entities that you had to go and petition the legislature. They were bespoke. And often they were used for social purposes, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that ultimately you would. Eric, when you say social, when you say social purposes, what do you mean by that? How are you? What are you distinguishing it from? 
Well, it'd be something that almost looks like an administrative agency. You know, mm-hmm. somebody or a uh, colonial legislature would decide that they needed a road or they needed a canal or they needed a bridge maintained or they needed a bank. And as a result mm-hmm. of that, they would partner basically with uh, private individuals to make that particular thing come into being. Right. Um, so different. Sorry, so different from what we think of as kind of a typical business corporation today, like some sort of like maybe quasi nonprofit or like public private partnership y type stuff? Yeah, very much. Uh, you know, the, the benefit corporations that people now talk about being really cutting edge, in fact, uh, look kind of like what exactly the state was doing that during those periods, meaning that the state saw that in addition to what it was capable of doing, that there were other social needs, so they allowed for the chartering of these business entities, often granting monopoly, often uh, partnering with people who were interested in profit, uh, and these corporations would come into uh, being. Mm. So from there, where we see it progress, uh, you know, notions of uh, private property ownership and industrialization and that sort of thing uh, come into being. Um, and become ingrained in our culture. So during the um, late 1700s, early 1800s, we see the first general incorporation statutes. Um, ultimately, if somebody wanted a corporation, they no longer had to go to the legislature for purposes of uh, creating that corporation. They just simply could file documents with the state. And really at that point, it's where we first see the divide between nonprofit and for-profit corporations for the first time. Okay. Um, so, you know, there we see basically the modern corporation come into being, and that ends up being bolstered by, you know, the Dodge v. Ford case that we saw during the 19-teens, where the Michigan Supreme Court um, essentially said that corporations uh, have to primarily be focused on seeking profit, um, which some scholars have transformed into this notion that basically corporations have to be these wealth-maximizing beasts that seek profit relentlessly, although obviously there are scholars that take issue with that. Mm-hmm. So, playing against that backdrop um, are scholars who are essentially trying to struggle with the issue of what exactly is a corporation. And there are really three prevailing theories uh, that came into being um, that have persisted throughout the existence of corporations, um, although during uh, various prime, uh, during various time periods, um, each one really has been the dominant theory. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning that you know initially this idea there was this idea that corporations were these artificial entities um, or these concessions that were granted uh, by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of that, you know, they uh, essentially owed their life to the state and the state held a whole lot of power over how they could be regulated. Okay. They did have separate entity status, but at the same time, um, they really were given life. They were breathe. They were uh, sculpted into to existence by the state, and that was the initial notion of the corporation. And it dovetails really nicely during, with that period of time where corporations were bespoke entities that had to be chartered first by the crown, then the parliament, then the colonial legislature, and then finally the state legislature. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as the general incorporation statutes came into being, um, there really was this question of whether or not the artificial entity theory or concession theory, as it's sometimes termed, was an adequate description of the corporation. 
Uh, and as a result of that, scholars in the United States began uh, looking to the continent, began looking to um, European scholars for purposes of essentially uh, trying to figure out what a corporation is. And um, they looked to the work of Otto Van Gerke. He had suggested that any time that you have a group of people, that they take on a collective identity. And he extended that into corporate law uh, with the notion that corporations essentially are natural entities, real entities um, that uh, essentially reflect the collective personalities of the individuals owning, organizing, and operating. Um, in terms of thinking about that theory, uh, definitely the corporation is a separate entity, once again, similar to concession theory, uh, popular throughout much of the 1900s into uh, the uh, probably the, the late 1980s, um, eventually uh, lost uh, steam because uh, there was a marriage of uh, corporate law scholarship in the United States to uh, economics, meaning the 1980s, um, essentially you have uh, the Chicago School and a bunch of scholars saying, you know, it's exciting to essentially marry economics uh, to corporate law uh, because it allows for all sorts of sophisticated analysis. Um, and as a result of that, despite the fact the um, real entity theory or natural entity theory um, may adequately describe aspects of the corporation, it doesn't really allow for that analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happened is is that um, economic scholars and, and uh, legal scholars started looking to the work of Ronald Coase. He had suggested that what the corporation really is is a nexus of contracts, um, or you know, is it sometimes termed an aggregate theory of the corporation, where essentially it's just the sum of its parts, um, and that is what adds up to the corporation. Um, usually with uh, proponents of the nexus contract theory of aggregate theory, they don't even believe that the corporation should really have a separate entity status. They think that, you know, really everything should be derivative from the people composing the corporation. Okay. Um, certainly all the, all the theories have things to like about them. Um, they all uh, basically uh, emphasize some attribute of the corporation. Uh, you know, the artificial entity theory basically uh, emphasizing the role of the state, uh, the real entity theory emphasizing uh, the corporation itself, and the nexus of contract theory uh, basically emphasizing the individual players within the corporation, the people organizing, owning, and operating it, um, but really not a thick and robust definition of what the corporation uh, happens to be. Okay. Uh, for that reason, early 1900s, you have John Dewey, and you've had people um, more recently, such as Bill Braddon, uh, who's a scholar at the University of Pennsylvania, which you, of course, know, um, <laughs> saying that essentially what we need to do is to embrace the indeterminacy of the corporation, uh, meaning this notion that um, all of the theories have something to like about them, but despite the fact that they're contradictory, we just simply ought to wrap our arms around all of them, sort of throw our hands up in the air after that. And um, even though there's inconsistency, you know, we just ought to embrace um, all of these theories to get a more robust, better definition of the corporate form. Huh. And that's really where my scholarship begins. Okay, so it sounds like we've got, you described three different theories here, right? So it's the concession mm-hmm. theory, which says corporations are just a, a creation of the state. Entity theory says that corporations are kind of brought into existence by people engaging in 
corporate activity together. And then this aggregate theory saying that the corporation is just the relationships between the people who, who operate the corporation. Um, would you describe these as normative theories, descriptive theories, some combination of the two? Like when we call them theories, what are we talking about here? Uh, they're designed to be both, meaning that ultimately they're designed to be descriptive in the sense that they are uh, meant to provide a definition of what a corporation is, but at the same time, you're supposed to be able to build um, from them to make determinations about how corporations ought to be regulated. Okay. And you know, there definitely are a couple of different ways that you can go in thinking about um, how corporations ought to be regulated. One is uh, to start off by thinking about essentially um, what is a corporation and working from there. The other is, and there are people who actively advocate for this, and I think this is partially what John Dewey was trying to get at, this notion that, okay, corporations just exist, so you know, figure out how to write, we should just figure out what the right way to regulate them is without figuring out essentially what they are. And my scholarship at least uh, sort of strikes the middle ground between that um, ultimately, I do think that we have to have certain sorts of positive law in regard to regulating corporations to make sure that they are um, behaving ways that they ought to be. Um, but at the same time, if we can understand what corporations are in the first place, you know, we know where we're starting. And in addition, if uh, we can figure out what that definition means, it allows us to predict what corporations should be doing um, in the event that um, there, the government hasn't started, hasn't stepped in, hasn't, hasn't uh, decided to regulate yet. Yeah. So, my, my, I mean, my reading of both of these papers was that you sort of appreciated how Dewey recognized the sort of merits and demerits of each one of these three prevailing theories and then kind of took this pragmatic position saying that, well, you know, we'll sort of they all have something good about them. We'll take them as a whole and see how we can produce the best outcomes. But, but you seem to be arguing that that's just not enough, that that's missing something as well, which is why you propose this, this new collaborative theory. Is, is, am I getting that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, John Dewey very clearly was a man of his times, a scholar of his times. Um, you know, at the point where he was writing, it, it sort of made sense, you know, okay, we have these various theories, they all seem to describe some aspect of the corporation, let's put our arms around all of them and just figure out what the best thing to do uh, is in the individual situation. That being said, I mean, when we have cases like Citizens United, Hobby Lobby, uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop, uh, figuring out what a corporation is in, in the times that uh, we actually uh, reside in now has become much more important than what it was in Dewey's day. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is I just think that a better definition is possible. Um, you know, if we look at this as a process of um, figuring out what a corporation happens to be answering that, that deep metaphysical question, um, Really, none of the prevailing theories uh, do that. You know, they all talk about how the corporation exists without talking about why the corporation exists. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if we take a, a bridge, for example, um, you know, for example, we could describe a bridge as basically something created by the government. I mean, that would be the artificial uh, entity theory of a bridge. And not a very good definition. <laughs> well, we can describe a bridge as just something that exists. 
And that wouldn't be a terrifically good uh, definition of a bridge either, but that would be the natural entity or real entity approach. And then finally, we could talk about a bridge as just a sum of its aggregate parts arranged in a certain ordering. And that has some descriptive appeal, appeal to it. I mean, it does give us a sense of what the structure looks like and how you create a bridge. But you know, none of those things really define what a bridge happens to be. You know, and until you come up with a definition like a structure designed to allow um, individuals and objects to be transported from one place to another or basically to span over uh, some sort of obstacle for purposes of transporting um, something from one place to another, you don't really get a robust definition. And the reason why that's a robust definition is, is it talks about how the bridge exists as a structure, but it also talks about why, meaning what the purpose of the bridge is. Mm-hmm. And in terms of my work, you know, I like all of the prevailing theories or I like aspects of them, but I just don't think that they've fully captured what a corporation happens to be. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so in your paper, um, again, you, you propose this collaborative theory and then show, I think, in some really interesting ways, both how it helps understand the concept of corporate response, social responsibility better. And then you also, I think, make some really interesting observations about how thinking about corporations under the collaborative theory helps us resolve in a more satisfying way some of these kind of normative problems around corporate regulation you've talked about, like, you know, corporate first amendment speech and, you know, the choice about who to sell to and all, and and all this kind of stuff, Um, which I want to get to in a second, but, but I, I I think first I really want to know, like, how does the collaborative theory work? Like, what does it, what does it do different? What is the collaborative theory? So in terms of thinking about collaboration theory, um, essentially what it posits is that corporations are essentially collaborations um, among uh, state governments and the individuals organizing, owning, and operating the corporation. And, you know, I've been struggling with, and I've still been thinking through the question of how widely that collaboration ought to extend. You know, should I extend it, for example, to creditors, customers, that sort of thing? You know, there are people who claim that the aggregate theory, for example, ought to be extended that broadly. Mm -hmm. So I haven't gotten to that piece quite yet. But as a starting point, the notion is, is that it's a collaboration between state governments and the individuals organizing, owning, and operating the corporation. And then in addition to that, now that we understand how the corporation exists, I add a component of why the corporation exists. And for for for-profit entities, what I argue is essentially that it's for purposes of economic development. Mm -hmm. And probably the thing that pops out to you at that point is, well, you know, the state's goal is going to be very different than the individual goal. For the state, it's going to be basically societal economic development, societal financial gain. Um, for, you know, the individuals in organizing, owning, and operating the corporation, it's going to be for personal economic development, mm-hmm. personal economic gain. You know, I don't think that that stops or is fatal to collaboration theories in, it, in any regard. And right. the reason for that is there's all sorts of collaborations out there that essentially um, people have different goals. Uh, you know, for example, musical composition, um, you know, the person who's producing the song, recording the song is going to have very different goals from the artists uh, versus the backup singers. Um, it doesn't stop it from being collaboration. 
Mm-hmm. And in terms of thinking about that, you know, pro- one of the other things that may be popping out is, well, is this really any different than in any of the other corporate law theories? Uh, first off, I do think it's a thicker explanation of what a corporation is. Uh, second, in addition to that, I think that, you know, it's better branded, you know, it better describes um, what uh, a corporation happens to be. And it does take issue with some of the uh, prevailing theories, you know, most notably, for example, the nexus contract theory doesn't really explain why you end up with separate corporate, corp, separate um, entity status for the corporation. Right. Collaboration theory, you know, I build on that work of Otto von Gerke, this notion of collective identity and the notion of collaboration, two heads being better than one, two heads being more than one, uh, to actually answer the question of why you end up with separate entity status. Yeah, I mean, it seems like one of the things that's really unique and interesting about it is that it, you know, it it takes the normativity of corporation theory a lot more seriously uh, in than some of the other theories. In in a sense that it says, in thinking about the definition of a corporation, we have to think about the purpose of the corporation itself. Yeah, I mean, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, how nicely this particular theory answers a whole lot of questions that are really, really difficult in the corporate law theory or in terms of corporate law theory that are hard to answer with any of those other prevailing theories. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I mean by that is in addition to answering really difficult questions about corporate social responsibility, you know, it helps to answer the questions about how corporations ought to be governed, how sh- uh, shareholder democracy ought to work, mm-hmm. uh, the long-termism versus short-termism debate, corporate social responsibility, tax avoidance, political speech, religious freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all of these really difficult issues that we've been struggling with as corporate law uh, scholars for centuries. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, as a little bit of a tangent, um, one thing that struck me when I was reading both papers was that in some ways your collaboration theory reminds me of like a version of stakeholder theory, but there's something different about it as well. Am I reading it correctly? Uh, you know, I definitely think that stakeholder theory and governance theories are at play here, but you know, I draw a line, and not all corporate law scholars do this, but I think that they ought to, between uh, essentialist theories and then governance theories. Mm. Um, the reason for that is that essentialist theories are really getting a metaf- at the metaphysical question of um, how exactly corporations exist, whereas when it comes to governance theories, they're asking more of a political question of how corporations ought to be governed. Um, yeah, and I do think that you know this particular theory leads to um, it leads to some conclusions about governance. Uh, you know, we have all of these different theories of governance in terms of you know should it be uh, basically a director focused theory or a director focused system of governance? Should it be a shareholder system of governance? Should it be team production? Um, and actually, you know. That team production theory, this notion that, you know, it's all these people coming together in a collaborative way, basically, to run the corporation, I think actually dovetails pretty nice with, nicely with collaboration theory, because the notion is, is that you have these different parties working together and arranged in such a way 
where it really is a team working towards a common goal. Right, right, right. Well, so in your, in your, in your most recent paper, you focus specifically on how the collaboration theory helps us better understand uh, corporate social responsibility and specifically the implementation of corporate social responsibility from the perspective of the directors of specifically a for-profit corporation. I was wondering if maybe you could kind of lay that out a little bit. So I've always been troubled, um, and this happens quite regularly. You'll attend an event and you'll hear somebody speak um, who is a director, officer, high-ranking person, respected part of a corporation, and they'll say, "Well, we ought to do corporate. We ought to do, um, or we ought to take an approach that basically uh, involves corporate social responsibility because it's the right thing to do." And you know, I'll sit there and I'll puzzle what exactly they mean by that. And I think there are a couple of different ways or a couple of different things that they might mean by what they're saying. Uh, first off, this notion is that it's better for the bottom line, uh, meaning that, you know, ultimately we have this obligation um, to do corporate social responsibility because society wants it. Mm. And they're going to treat corporations better if they actually engage in corporate social responsibility. It's going to protect the entity better. Um, it's going to make sure that customers continue to come back because they know that they're dealing with a corporate uh, a firm that engages in corporate social responsibility. And, that sort of thing. and I think that's fully backed up as, in terms of how people conceive of corporate law today. You know, this notion that corporate corporations are supposed to be primarily focused on profit. And that goes back to that seminal case of Dodge v. Ford, where the Michigan Supreme Court stated that, you know, that's completely and totally what corporations ought to do. Mm-hmm. Well, the problem is, is that there are three other cases that are lurking in the background. Uh, first off, the circumstance where um, basically um, it's cost neutral. Uh, meaning that, you know, assuming that you're able to do the cost-benefit analysis, that uh, the question of whether or not um, to do um, corporate social responsibility um, doesn't have a clear cost-benefit and it doesn't have um, any sort of impact on the bottom line, where essentially it's zero if you do the uh, socially responsible activity. Um, Second circumstance would be a circumstance where the cost-benefit analysis is unclear. I mean, you know, it's really, really hard to predict the future. Um, and the question is, why exactly should you tip in favor of doing the socially responsible activity if you happen to be a corporation? And the third in circumstances where something's legally permissible, uh, but at the same time, um, in fact, um, it's socially irresponsible. So in terms of thinking about that, the first two cases, um, my theory answers why exactly you should do the socially responsible thing. Uh, The notion being essentially that um, when in doubt, err on the side of being doing the socially responsible thing because you're in a collaboration with the state. You know, we have that famous case out there, Salman B. Meinhard, where Justice... uh, or Judge uh, Cardozo said that uh, basically individuals owe individuals who are collaborating uh, within business entities owe each other a punctilio of an honor most sensitive. And in addition to that, I mean, there is a contractual basis to this theory um, that there's a duty of good faith that underlies all contractual relationships, Mm -hmm. uh, meaning that, you know, 
people who uh, essentially enter into contracts with each other ought to be behaving well to each other. And as a result of that, you know, there's two circumstances where if you really pressed uh, a corporate manager um, as to why exactly the corporate social responsibility first corporate social uh, responsible thing to do was the right thing to do, most of them will resort to intuitionism and just say, well, it's the right thing to do. My theory actually answers the question that why in the circumstance where the cost-benefit analysis is cost-neutral or in the circumstance where uh, the cost-benefit analysis is unclear, you ought to do the pro-social thing. Basically, it's individuals collaborating with the state. Uh, that, of course, leaves that other category, circumstances where uh, something is legal to do, uh, but at the uh, same time, um, and at the same time, better put, um, essentially is uh, socially irresponsible. I do think that corporations have an obligation to do that as long as the particular activity is legal. Mm-hmm. And that's disturbing to most people because it means that there's going to be circumstances where corporations do bad things. Um, you know, for example, prior to a lot of environmental regulation, it meant that corporations dump stuff into rivers. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I have a couple of responses to that. First off, because we know that life is so unpredictable and that doing cost-benefit analyses, we can give clear and clean hypotheticals, but that's just simply not the way that life works. Mm-hmm. That's only going to be the rarest of rare situations uh, where you find something that's legal to do, um, where it clearly um, benefits the corporation, um, but it's still socially, unre- it's socially irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, it does show what the role of positive law is. Meaning that, you know, if you are a legislature, that's what you ought to be seeking out for legislation. You ought to be trying to alter the um, cost-benefit analysis. And the environmental law example is actually a pretty good one. You know, ultimately, in terms of environmental regulation, we came to realize that um, corporations were going to dump toxic things. And as a result of that, as a society, we came together and passed environmental laws to alter the cost-benefit analysis. And as we moved essentially what was in that fourth category into a clear case where it was better for the corporation to do the right thing. Right, right. Well, in a way, it's, it's almost like what you're saying is, you know, the state is a collaborator too, and its job in this collaboration is to save the corporation from making bad decisions, you know, when it would otherwise be forced to. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. I mean, definitely, uh, my view is is that you know all of the parties involved here, uh, the individuals owning, organizing, and operating the corporation or collaborations, collaborators, but also the state. But definitely, the state does have a substantial role. Um, and in terms of thinking about that role, you know, it helps to explain why um, you know in certain instances uh, we can regulate corporations in ways that we can't regulate people. Uh, for example, with political speech. Um, you know, that jumps to mind or potentially um, in regard to the religious freedoms of other individuals um, who happen to be um, involved with the corporation as uh, their owners, organizers, or operators. It actually, you know, provides um, a relatively um, neat um, way of thinking about the Masterpiece Cake Shop, a case from last term regarding uh, how exactly corporate rights should uh, intersect with um, religious rights. 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, I, I want to get to that in one second because I actually really like that part of your argument as well. But there was one other thing that I noticed that I also really liked about your corporate social responsibility argument is that in a way it provided one of the better descriptions of the seeming tension between uh, Dodge v. Ford and the business judgment rule, right? Because everyone knows like Dodge v. Ford says you have to do the profit maximizing thing. But in practice, the business judgment rule says that it's almost impossible to stop the corporate directors from doing whatever it is that they think the right thing to do is. And in a way, I felt like your description of how the collaborative theory works in this context tracks so nicely under that practical reality. Yeah, I mean, definitely in terms of thinking about the business judgment rule, it does give very, very wide discretion, you know, as long as you can articulate any sort of business judgment. I mean, you know, honestly, I think that if um, Henry Ford, rather than claiming that he was going to run Ford Motor Company to benefit the people, had said that what he was doing was trying to drive the Dodges out of business um, or preventing them from starting their car business, you know, that uh, he, he the court would have said, fine, that's a business purpose. We're perfectly fine with that, despite the fact that, you know, it's anti-competitive. Yeah. But, you know, ultimately the business judgment rule provides a little wide latitude, but collaboration theory does provide a check on that, meaning that, you know, it gives certain instances where there have to be outer limits to the business judgment rule, where there have to be circumstances um, where, you know, a business explanation simply won't be enough for certain sorts of behavior. Right. Um, you know, and it gets into some of those uh, really, really tough issues when it comes to thinking about um, individual rights um, and corporate political rights. You know, it gives some explanation as to what exactly courts ought to do in those particular circumstances and why exactly, you know, corporations, um, because they are creatures that have been um, created by the state and collaborated and their collaborations with the state, why exactly, you know, certain sorts of regulations of corporations are permissible. Right. So that was something I thought was really interesting uh, about the way you articulated the role of the purpose of the corporation and collaboration theory in relation to explaining why it is that corporations can and should be regulated differently from the way that individuals are regulated with, with respect to particular kinds of social behaviors. Yeah. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised how well this mapped on to how individuals generally, uh, I'm not talking about people with legal training, Mm -hmm. feel that corporations ought to behave. Um, you know, both in terms of corporate social responsibility, um, but also in lots of other contexts. Um, you know, there really is a thickness to this theory that I think that the other theories lack. Um, you know, and it helps to explain some really hard problems of our day. You know, political speech, for example, with the government speech doctrine, which essentially says that if um, speech is being attributed to the government that uh, ultimately uh, the government has a say in what that speech happens to be helps to explain why, you know, the money that's being dumped into our political process by corporations and by business entities, why there might be grounds to, to regulate it um, and 
hopefully at some point courts will actually pick up on this theory and you know mm-hmm. do some of the work that they need to in terms of making sure that corporations um, really are serving the function that they're designed to um, achieve, which is you know economic development, both for individuals and our society as a whole. Right. And that's what I really like. I mean, it's like, it struck me that it's like, as soon as you adopt, or as, as soon as you like make a little bit more robust, the idea that a corporation has a social purpose, even a business corporation has a social purpose other than just profit maximization, all of a sudden it becomes much easier to say, well, and that purpose may not include all of the kinds of purposes that might be legitimate for individuals. In other words, a business corporation may not have the purpose of engaging in extensive lobbying with respect to contentious social issues, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting. You know, I haven't been called a communist yet in any of my uh, presentations and I don't get there, you know, and I do, I think I have a pretty good response to that, that, you know, basically the deal that's being struck with the state is that the individual should be going out and seeking profit and doing it relatively aggressively. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it helps to set the outer bounds of that. And, you know, there have been scholars out there, uh, Elizabeth Coleman, who's at Royal LA, and Jordan Berry, who is a scholar at uh, University of San Diego, you know, have talked about questions uh, in terms of corporations who have been aggressively engaged in lawbreaking for purposes of essentially advancing, um, you know, their own business models. You know, I, I think that this this particular theory gives some indication that you know corporate lawbreaking really should not be a thing that corporations engage in because mm-hmm. there are meets and bounds at the outer limit um, of what exactly corporations should be allowed to do, and mm-hmm. the government has a role in setting what those meets and bounds are as collaborators in the process. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I love it. And okay, so for the last few minutes of our conversation, which I really wish we could keep talking for longer. Um, I wanted to get at another aspect of your scholarship, which I also, which I also really like, you know, as a fellow charity law nonprofit scholar in that one of the things I really like about your collaboration theory is it breaks down or, you know, it breaks down this sort of typical hard line distinction between business corporations and charitable corporations, right? I mean, typically in, you know, in law school, in legal scholarship, we tend to te- we tend to treat them as totally distinct categories, different animals entirely, right? Business corporations are one thing, charities are mm-hmm. another. But once you start talking about the purpose of a business corporation in a more robust way, all of a sudden, the kind of a lot of the governance questions and a lot of the kind of deep metaphysical, philosophical, normative questions start to look like differences of kind, not differences of type. And I thought that was really interesting and sort of an indication to me of the potential utility and descriptive power of the theory that you're proposing. Yeah, I mean, this particular project, I had done some research and had started looking around to find out if there were theories of nonprofit corporations. Um, and I found that there wasn't really anybody who was talking about that. Um, so, you know, ultimately, this project really um, came from that particular origin. And then I, as I worked on it, I realized that it extended so well to for profit entities. 
you know, the notion is, is that, you know, if you're thinking about collaboration theory, it works well for for-profit corporations, but it probably even works better for nonprofit corporations. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is, you know, when it comes to nonprofit corporations, in addition to having the people who are organizing and operating the corporation in the state, which breathes life, life into the nonprofit corporate form uh, and gives it limited liability, you also have the federal government. Uh, involved in that particular case, which is giving it uh, tax-exempt status, uh, assuming that it meets the criteria of um, of 503c or one of the other per, one of the other provisions found uh, in that area of the tax code. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and ultimately, you know, when it comes to nonprofits, you know, I think that rather than economic development, you're really looking at social development or improving social well-being. Um, there's a lot of commonalities there in terms of thinking about uh, for-profit entities in terms of how uh, nonprofits and for-profits, you know, ought to be managed in a similar sort of way and thought about, um, well, thought about uh, as being closer to each other than they are now. Uh, and, you know, all, if you look at the history of corporations, which, you know, there are a lot of people out there who haven't thought deeply about the history of corporations. Mm-hmm. Now, that completely and totally makes sense because, you know, Historically, until the late 1700s, early 1800s, there was no difference between nonprofits and for profits. Yeah, it's weird. Like everything old is new again, really. It's like back, yeah. cycling back to an earlier way of thinking. And, and, and in a weird way, it struck me that, you know, taken to its logical conclusion, in a sense, you're, it seems to me like you could even conceptualize business corporations as a subset of of charitable corporations insofar as, you know, charitable corporations have a broad range of different social purposes that they're created in order to pursue and business corporations in theory anyway, could be conceptualized as just corporations that have been created with the social purpose of maximizing economic welfare, right? Which is also a social good. It's just a very limited social good. Yeah, uh, that's a fantastic point. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. I'm going to have to steal that. <laughs> <laughs> Be my guest. Well, I'm glad I was able to offer yeah, something. I'll cite it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad I was able to offer something to my guest, Eric. This has been a fantastic conversation. You know how much uh, I've enjoyed reading these papers. And I really look forward to, um, to hopefully your, your forthcoming book on the subject. Um, thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed this series and I am pleased to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, I will talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.